area that God is, uh, you know, there's a little bit of light there that God is. Sermon outline. This is understanding the kingdom. We're in Matthew chapter 13. It's a very unique chapter. It's mostly about parables. It's filled with parables. Uh, But today we're at one part, this one sort of uh, break in the action where Jesus explains parables. And uh, so let's turn there. It's Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. So you want to turn there in your Bibles, scroll there in your Electronic devices, look in the bulletin, insert. Uh, Lots of opportunities for you to find Matthew 13. So please listen carefully. This is uh, God's word. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them... It has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. You have brought us again to this great book, the Gospel of Matthew, to learn about Jesus. And we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand what parables are and what parables mean and what we're supposed to learn from them. Help us to see these aren't merely interesting stories, but hold within them profound truths which can change our lives. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus, and help us to hear Jesus, and help us to understand Jesus. As always for this, we need your grace. Give us the ability to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, history teaches us that some kingdoms can be successfully resisted. If you think about history, even recent history, uh, many of the kingdoms that existed just 100 years ago can now only be found in the history books. The vast majority of kingdoms that still exist, uh, like ones that we would find in the United Kingdom or Spain, are actually what we would call constitutional monarchies. 
uh, where the king or queen no longer has absolute power. In fact, in modern-day Europe, the only disciples not fight for it. And within a few hours of this command, he was dead. So doesn't history show us that Jesus' kingdom was utterly resistible? And if Jesus' kingdom is as important as Jesus himself claimed, then why is it so unimpressive that it seems to be somewhat powerless? Does that dishearten you that it's not bigger and grander? What we've seen so far in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 is that Jesus' kingdom causes opposition and confusion. In chapter 13, Jesus reveals to his disciples why there is such confusion and opposition and why that's not a failure of the kingdom. It is an inevitable result of the kingdom. It's not a cause to believe that the kingdom uh, can be resisted or that it's failing or that it's falling. Uh, not at all. In Matthew 13, we get a clear vision of Jesus' kingdom with Jesus' own eyes, and we can see that it's both valuable and unstoppable. So don't be disillusioned by the temporary commitments to the kingdom that we see all around us. It's deeply sad when people seem to show an interest in the gospel, when they seem to have come to faith in Christ, and then they walk away. But it should be an encouragement to us that this is not something that surprises Jesus. It saddens him, surely, but it doesn't surprise him. We should be encouraged that it's part of the nature of his kingdom that there are different reactions to Jesus. C.S. Lewis describes this, uh, I think, very well in his book, The Magician's Nephew one of the Chronicles of Narnia, and there's a scene uh, when Aslan first speaks in Narnia, and the children marvel. Uh, but the magician is not happy with what he hears. Lewis writes, The longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe he had heard nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you are is that you often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else if he wanted to. When at last the lion spoke and said, Narnian's awake, he didn't hear any words. He only heard a snarl. And so it is with a hardened heart. It starts out hearing only what it wants to hear from Jesus and ends up hearing nothing at all. And Scripture makes it clear the only reason we don't submit to Jesus' kingship is not because his voice is unclear, because we don't hear what he wants to say. Now, if you're not a Christian here uh, this morning, I'm wondering if you've come to understand what it means to live your life before God and not just for yourself. Perhaps you've felt that call to follow Christ pressed hard against your heart, and yet you slept on it and woke up the next day and did nothing about it. The parables are telling us, do not let your heart be hardened to Jesus' words. That the hardened heart rejects the gospel before it really understands the truth of it. 
And we don't have to go any farther than today's passage to see the evidence of that. Here in Matthew 13, uh, verses 10 through 17, we have this unique passage planted right in the middle of the parable of the sower, where Jesus explains the purpose of the parables. Starting there with verse 10. See, this whole chapter, Matthew 13, deals with the parables of Christ. There's seven parables in this chapter. They're not the very first parables of Christ. We've seen uh, parabolic language in other passages. But this is the most concentrated section of parables anywhere in the Gospels. And Jesus calls the message contained in these parables the mysteries of the kingdom. And that brings us back to the context. The parables are spoken both to the crowds and the disciples on a very busy day. If we back up a couple chapters in Matthew 11, Jesus denounced the Galilean cities that rejected his uh, claims to be the Messiah. They had stark unbelief. But then he rejoiced in the divine sovereignty and salvation and the gospel invitation that some people would believe. And then the Sabbath arrived, and Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, demonstrating his authority to do that by healing a man in the synagogue. And he did that to the utter disbelief and anger of the Pharisees. And that's what lays the foundation for the parables. In, in the very first verse of Matthew 13, it says, that same day, which leads me to believe that most of Matthew 13 happened on the same day as the events of Matthew 12. So we had the events of Matthew 12 and the parables of Matthew 13, but all in one day. Now, Matthew 12, Jesus demonstrated that he's the Messiah, demonstrated his office, his authority, by this dual act of deliverance and healing. And again, the Pharisees reacted really harshly. In fact, they charged that Jesus was aligned with the devil. And Jesus challenged them back and said, if you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, you are blaspheming against the Spirit. And so what follows is a series of explanations and contrasts and examples that distinguish true spirituality, true religion, true faith, from the false spirituality seen in the legalism of the Pharisees. And so we see that good trees bring forth good fruit, bad trees bring forth bad fruit. And then the Pharisees had the pretense of asking Christ for signs, even though he had already done all these miracles right in front of them. They asked him for a sign. It demonstrates their unwillingness to believe the clear testimony that Christ is the Messiah. And he's exposing the fact that mere moral improvement is an inadequate substitute for faith in Christ. So if you're one of the disciples and you're watching this, there's these dramatic healings, there's this confrontation with the Pharisees, and it has to sort of boggle your mind. It's a little hard to figure out what's going on. The very people they were brought up believing to be the most spiritual people are turning out to be the most condemned. And the most unlikely people turn out by God's sovereign grace to be the most faithful followers of Christ. And it's just this upside-down, backwards kind of thing. And they're trying to figure it all out. And they're realizing the kingdom of God has nothing to do with armies and political movements as they've been taught. And Jesus is telling them the kingdom's right here. It's already emerged in their midst and they're seeing its power already uh, starting to work. And he's slowly revealing all of this, and it's just got to be 
boggling the disciples' minds. Things are not the way they expected, not the way that they thought it was supposed to be. And that brings us to the parables and their purpose, because how do you explain that these seemingly intelligent, rational, uh, religious-trained, moral people hear the gospel and they do not believe? How do you explain why some people appear to make a great start in Christianity and fall away? How does the kingdom life distinguish believers from unbelievers? How does this small beginning of the kingdom in a corner of the mighty Roman Empire fulfill the global reach that the prophets predicted? How does the kingdom affect what you value as most important in life? And Jesus gives us parables to answer all these questions and to make us think deeply about the most important subject of our lives, which is the rule of Christ as the king over us. You think deeply about kingdom life, about your relationship to the king? Understanding the parables will help you do that. So what's a parable? The parables have been described as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Generally speaking, the parables are stories that make you think deeply about spiritual realities leaving you to seek the Lord to understand more of his message. And more than anything else, the parables are Christ's parables, God speaking to us about the realities of the kingdom. And the disciples thought it curious that with all this confusion and tension and opposition, that these crowds had come to Christ and he spoke to them in parables. And so in verse 10, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? You know, we can make this a lot clearer and easier to understand, Jesus. I don't get it. You know, this is not the way you're supposed to do it. You know, I mean, if you take your preaching one class, we say try to make it clear, simple, understandable. Jesus is flunking. He's speaking in parables. So how does Jesus answer them? Well, he answers them very uniquely, and he answers them in three ways. First way, he tells them that he speaks in parables because he wants them to understand that he causes division. He causes division. Look at verses 11 and 12. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He begins by telling the disciples there's a difference in the way God treats them, the disciples, and those that simply gather around as curious listeners. Later in the chapter, he'll expand on this in the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. But the essence of what Jesus says here is that he speaks in parables for two reasons. To reveal truth and to hide it. To reveal it and to hide it. To reveal truth to those whose hearts are responsive and to hide it from those whose hearts are not. So already you can see the division. Parables are a powerful way of teaching, but some degree of commitment is required in the hearers, if they're really going to understand what the parable is saying. 
A parable drives home truth to the believer, but it goes right over the head of the unbeliever. And the fact is, they're given the meaning of the parables is an evidence of grace. The fact that they're given the meaning of the parables uh, tells us that it's God's to give. It's grace. It's not ours to demand. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, there's an antidote there for this presumption in our society today of men thinking that they can determine their place in God's society, that they can control their own timing in obeying the call of the gospel. Understanding what Jesus meant in the parables comes as a gift of grace, not out of our own intelligence. And Jesus has no qualms about rejoicing in the divine sovereignty of salvation. The fact that some people don't understand doesn't seem to bother him. God is sovereign in salvation or else we're without hope due to the desperate condition of our hearts. And that's one of the things that Jesus is setting forth as the rationale uh, for the parables. He's telling us that God's sovereign saving work is evident by the way that he increases and adds to the true believer's life. He says, to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. In other words, the believer's understanding and experience of the Lord will grow. How can you recognize the Christian? The same God that began a work continues it. It's amplified over time by the increase of God. But on the other hand, if the work of God increases in the life of a believer then it decreases in the life of the unbeliever. He says, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The man that persists in defiance against Christ and against the gospel doesn't maintain whatever small understanding he had in the first place, but it diminishes this precious treasure that came to him in the gospel, which offered him life, but which he considered unimportant, will have to him less and less importance in the future. And it's borne out by the parable of the sower, as those showing promise of receiving the gospel uh, seed, but lack the right soil of the heart to receive it, they plunge into more sin and rebellion against God, as Tom laid out for you last week. And here's the primary point that Jesus is making. When anyone uses the spiritual truth that he or she has been given, that truth grows in its impact on their life. And when God adds more to it, but in contrast, if he doesn't use it, if she doesn't use it, they find it slipping away. You think about it, that same principle can be seen in almost any aspect of life. You know, we'll, we'll talk about sports. Baseball's on our mind. If you play ball and you refuse to practice, your skills deteriorate. You can't take a month off and come back and expect to be as good as you were a month ago. You can't take a year off and expect to come back and be as good as you were last year. And the higher up you go, the more true that is. The person who does nothing with what he has with what he's been given, with what he's received, eventually we'll lose even that. So the disciples ask Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answers them three ways. First, he speaks in parables because he wants them to understand that he's causing division. 
And second, he speaks in parables because he wants them to understand that he is fulfilling prophecy, that he fulfills prophecy. My water bottle is slowly sliding down the arm of the chair here. I grab it before it completely disappears. The, uh, so he explains further the rationale for parables by considering here man's stubborn resistance to gospel truth. He says, starting in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So here Jesus explains the condition of the human heart apart from God's sovereign intervention. Parables are spiritual truths that have to be grasped with spiritual minds, which is what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And that is far from man. He can hear and see and understand many, many things, can plot the course of stars and uh, probe the mysteries of human DNA and calculate the physics necessary to split an atom. But those amazing God-given faculties cannot understand the rule of God in the heart apart from the sovereign aid of the Holy Spirit. Think about one of the most fascinating people in American history was Ben Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a genius. He invented devices to add to our comforts. He understood the dynamics of human personality. He understood the formulation of a new system of government that would sustain liberty. And he had this remarkable ability to write fiction and allegory and satire and even legal works. He's one of the most perceptive people of his age. And on numerous occasions, Franklin went to hear the great preacher George Whitfield. And uh, we know that Whitfield drew the largest crowds of any man up to that point. He preached the necessity of the new birth as his great theme and clearly and passionately proclaimed the gospel. And Franklin admired him, and he admired him so much, he even published some of his writings. And yet, through it all, Ben Franklin remained a deist, detached from a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. He had eyes and ears and a great mind. But when it came to spiritual truths, he couldn't see, he couldn't hear, and he couldn't understand. And he never came to the point of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So what does man do? He resists, rejects, scoffs, 
maybe plays along for a while due to cultural influences or emotional needs in his life, but ultimately the reality of his life is going to be exposed. Just as the parables tell us, there's weeds among the wheat, and there's four kinds of soil, and there's going to be good fish and bad fish in the net. Demonstrates the values of this world and its enhancements are greater to him than Jesus is. Ultimately, that's what we see with these people who we think, who seem to hear, but don't. We find that Jesus, whom we see as the greatest treasure, as the pearl of great price, means neither of those things to someone who's apart from God. Apart from God's work in the human heart, man remains without hope. And the mystery here is not in the language. It's not in the stories. These are simple uh, little stories, quaint scenes from normal everyday life. But the reason the kingdom's mysterious is due to the condition of our hearts. Men created in the image of God with the capacity for knowing him and relating to him at every level ought to be able to understand his rule and his kingship and his kingdom. And yet that's not the case because of the fall, because of our distance, because of a condition of our hearts and our sin and rebellion against God. And so how does Jesus explain this? He, move that down. He sees the fulfillment of prophecy in the way that many of these people are responding to him and responding to his teaching. Just the right words are found in quoting Isaiah. Isaiah predicted some 700 years earlier that you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. This is where the gospel frustrates our perceptions of our own abilities. If people could see and hear Christ, God himself, and yet not believe, how dare we think we can improve upon his ability in our own words and deeds. It's God that hides and reveals at his good pleasure. And if anything, it ought to encourage us all the more that God is pleased to reveal the mystery of the gospel through simple stories of parables and gospel explanations because God is doing what we can't do. And these parables stand as testimonies to the mercy of God that opens darkened understandings of people, enabling them to see and to believe. But they also stand as testimonies against those who insist on having their own way, who insist on dictating terms to the God who made them, who insist on understanding Jesus on their own terms and not his. We naturally tend to shy away uh, from probing the human bent towards sin and rebellion against God. But Jesus considered vital to understanding the mysteries of the kingdom and the necessity of the parables. In verse 15 he says, For this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, by no means is he trying to give them an excuse to rebel against God or an excuse to ignore him or misunderstand him or simply refuse to listen to him. He's demonstrating that because of their spiritual condition, 
they're still uh, accountable. They're still held accountable to God because uh, his judgment is righteous and just when men pursue their pleasures and not God's glory. He says this people's heart has grown dull, demonstrating certain things affect the human heart in such a way that it's made more insensitive by degrees. As men turn away from the truth, as they desire their own way above God's rule, as they follow after their own lusts and defiance of God's law. Paul amplifies this in Romans 1 uh, through 3, showing that the pursuit of our own way, our own desires, our own lusts, in defiance of the revelation of God, plunges man into even, even deeper darkness. We start dark. But if we rebel and, and constantly defy God, then our life gets darker. It's kind of like a lot of times, may happen to, to some of you, people will come uh, to see me because they have some issue or crisis or some problem uh, in their life, and they'll say, I've hit the bottom of the barrel. And I'm like, oh no, it can get way worse than this. You know, if you don't repent now, it's, your life's really going to fall apart. It's just starting. You know, you, you would best take this as a gracious warning from God because your life is not nearly as bad as it is going to be if you don't repent. And that's usually not what they come to hear. Uh, they usually tell me that's not what they came to hear. But... Uh, that's the way it is. We, we think we've hit bottom. And yet God is saying that if you turn away from me, you have no idea how dark it can get and how bad it can get. We just don't think. And that's for other people. That wouldn't apply to me. One of the things that Jesus says, if you rebel, the darkness will increase. And he quotes God's message to Isaiah if you a little bit about the story, Isaiah is facing rebellious people. And he's had this great vision of God, and God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He says, great, you're the man, Isaiah. And then he gives him this verse. Here's the message I want you to give him. Go tell them that they have eyes that see, but they never understand. They have ears to hear, and they never perceive. And Isaiah says, how long? When do I get to the good news? You know, the good stuff. And he's like, till the mountains fall into the sea. This is the only message for the rest of your life. Isaiah's like, what did I sign up for? And that's what Jesus is quoting here. Even though these people in Isaiah's time had profited by God's mercy, his abundant provision, they didn't turn to him. And he says, your hearts are dull. They rejected all the warnings of the prophets, which are all about their own destruction. You read the prophets, and they basically say, turn back to God. Repent. Because look around you. There's Babylonians, there's Assyrians, there's Persians, and they don't like you. And they were like, nah, we're good. Don't need to worry about it. Such is the destiny of man if we, 
if God doesn't come into our lives. We say, we're going to be fine. All those bad things around us won't affect me. They affect other people, but I'm good. And if God doesn't break, in, break into our lives and give us understanding and open our understanding, then we have the same result as the people of Isaiah's day. And so the result of your heart growing dull and your eyes can barely hear, and he says they actually shut their eyes to their truth. He says in their eyes they have closed. He says basically if life is before you, you're choosing death. And if the truth will set you free, you're choosing bondage. And that the depravity of the human heart runs so deep that men are dull to spiritual truths to such an extent that they are glaringly shutting their eyes in the face of God's glory. And haven't we seen this over and over again? I was talking with someone just the other day, um, and uh, he was trying to explain the moral shift in our country. And as you can imagine, if you've kept up and not lived in a cave for the last 30 years, uh, uh, in terms of morality, things haven't shifted in a good direction. It's been somewhat negative. And so he's trying to explain this is all that uh, can be explained by Darwinism and evolution. And I said, well, I think that's part of it. But Darwinism doesn't explain this. And it's not humanism, and it's not secularism, and it's not postmodernism that explains it. And none of the isms ultimately explain this. He said, well, what does? Romans 1 explains it. It is man, dark in his understanding, rejecting the gracious revelation of God as his creator, rejecting the tender voice of his own God-given conscience to pursue his own way, which leads to rebellion against God and a downward spiral of increasing idolatry and immorality and darkness. And that's what Romans says. So the disciples ask, why do you speak in parables? Jesus gives three answers. He says he wants them to understand. He causes division, giving understanding to those who believe and removing understanding from those who don't. Second, he wants them to understand that he's fulfilling prophecy, demonstrating that just like the Israelites of Isaiah's time, if they don't understand, they will eventually be destroyed. However, the good news is that's not the end of the story. Because the third thing he wants them to understand is that he speaks in parables because he wants them to know that he confirms faith. That he confirms faith. Look at verse 16. Jesus turns to his disciples and offers these very encouraging words. Yes, there's always grace in there somewhere. You just got to dig deep till you find it. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The use of mystery to refer to spiritual realities that can't be perceived by natural means is pretty common in the Bible. Paul often speaks of the mystery of the gospel, pointing to the grace of God that calls Jews and Gentiles out of darkness and into a relationship with God through Christ. And the message of the cross is so mysterious to men's minds, they try to explain it in moral terms or emotional terms and fail to see it as a display of God's righteousness and saving us from our sin. And the men call the 
declaration of the gospel foolishness. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Again, 1 Corinthians, this time chapter 1, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who's being saved, it's the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think of this in our own setting right here this morning. We've gathered to sing and worship a God who met his own demands for legal righteousness at the cross. And so we sing about the cross of Christ and he who died on our behalf and the love that sent him to die for our redemption. And we glory in that truth. But what does the world think about that? They think we're morons. That we're unsophisticated and fanatical for spending our time doing what we're doing this morning. Can there be any sharper distinction? And Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. Lots of people have eyes that technically see and ears they hear, but they fail to see and hear and perceive and understand the most important thing in the world, Christ crucified and risen again from the dead. And most ears fail to hear that most important sound, the call of God in the gospel to turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Jesus doesn't declare you blessed if you're smart, if you have an high IQ, or if you're rich and you have a billion dollars, or if you're popular in school, or you're getting the promotions at work, or you have this beautiful, enviable appearance. Those things might serve for a short while to mask our happiness. But none of those things can sustain you on the tough days when you're struggling with despair and depression. None of those things can sustain you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. None of those things can cleanse you from the indelible stain of sin that haunts your heart and looms before judgment. And yet, even among us, some people pursue all those things as if they're going to fill their heart with satisfaction. And the parables teach us there's one treasure, there is one pearl worth all that you are and all that you have, and that's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of the kingdom. And he says, you know, we admire the Old Testament prophets. They saw so much, they spoke so boldly. Who can compare with Isaiah's breadth of understanding of the majesty of God? Who rivals Jeremiah's a passion for the new covenant and anticipating what God would do in the future? Who can top Daniel's view of God's sovereignty over the world and all kingdoms? But for all that, Jesus tells us the prophets would have traded it all to see and hear what is ours in the gospel. You, who have known Christ in the mystery of the gospel, have more than the prophets. Let your mind settle on that for a moment. Isaiah endured the reign of four kings and stubborn people just to see and hear what is you, excuse me, what is yours in Christ. Jeremiah faced the opposition of a nation living at the edge of death just to see the beauty of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he was willing to go in order to meet the one in whom you already know. The one that searches the past 
and the future, who knows the thoughts of men's hearts, who tells us that the prophets and the righteous teachers from over 2,500 years ago lived with one overriding desire. One thing they wanted, more than wealth or fame or power, was to see and hear the unfolding of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, which is Christ crucified and risen from the dead. They longed to feel the reality of Christ's rule in their lives, to know the delights of belonging to his kingdom through the work of Christ. With the incarnation of Christ and his teaching and healing among them, this new level of knowledge and intimacy with God becomes possible. It was unknown in Old Testament times, but it's only available to those with responsive hearts. Have you noticed TV commercials have turned into mini-movies? Instead of simply presenting the virtue of this particular product, they tell a story that subtly sells this stuff. Maybe you've seen the commercial in which Trisha, who's this sophisticated city dweller, takes a trip to her boyfriend's family farm, and she's here riding a, on a tractor, and she's feeding the chickens, and she's wandering in this beautiful field of wildflowers. And it makes the viewer feel good with the storyline of this urban person having a great time out in the country in these green fields. But the point of the story is that Trisha's not having any problems with her chronic allergies because she took the right meds before she went to the countryside. And marketers call these spots advertainments. I never heard of that word before I ran across this. Advertainments. And it says expect to see more of them. They're working very hard to get you to like their commercials so you watch them because they know you now have these commercial evading tools like DVRs and the always popular remote control. There are no many movies in the Bible, but we do read, like here in Matthew 13, of Jesus telling many stories. These brief, simple tales, known as parables, reveal truths using characters and situations that people can easily follow. The message often is very subtle. Jesus knew the heart of men, and so when he said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, he's letting his disciples know two things. Believers would get it, and unbelievers would reject it. And that's a universal truth. The sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, and the word that opens the hearts of some to receive Christ confirms others in their rebellion, rejection, and unbelief. And the parables become doors by which some enter into the glories of the kingdom and others are shut out from its blessings. And if we understand the parables, it's a sign that we're shut in. And if we don't, it's a sign that we're shut out. But one thing is certain, when Jesus speaks, when the gospel is preached, there is always a response. And as you read Jesus' parables, thank him for giving you the ability to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. These many stories can alter the story of your life. This is what introduces us to the parables of Matthew 13. Simple stories of common things in their day. And yet the message that rings from them calls you to value your relationship to Jesus Christ as Lord and King above everything else. 
Is the kingdom rule of Christ still a mystery to you? Or have you come to accept that you belong to him and you belong in his kingdom, not because of what you can do or what you can see or what you can hear, because what he has done for you and what he has given to you, which is, as we read in Colossians 2, full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And thank you that here we see your son, Jesus. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Open our ears that we might hear the truths that he speaks and apply them to our lives. Open our minds that we might know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and open our hearts to his love that we might be more willing to follow him. We know we can only be there by faith. So Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not knowing Jesus, not trusting Jesus, we ask by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace, through faith, in Christ, that they might embrace Jesus and help us, all of us, to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.